You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. All hands on deck for the elections, but really the Fed seem to think the hacking problems will be small and manageable. The information ops might be another thing. Flashpoint sees Mirai losing its mojo in a black market market correction. Users in Turkey flee censorship into Tor. Operation Hyperion shuts down a lot of dark web nastiness. Tesco fraud investigations continue. And, Your Honor, the plaintiff pleads bad writing. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, November 8th, 2016. As the U.S. elections proceed, the federal government is simultaneously said to have all hands on deck against hacking and to not really be that worried about this whole hacking thing. The story is more complex than contradictory, however. The hacking officials aren't too worried about would be widespread direct compromise of voting systems in ways that could directly manipulate the U.S. election's results, essentially industrial-scale voter fraud. This indeed seems relatively unlikely. U.S. voting is run by the states with heavy participation by local governments, and that system is sufficiently disparate and not coordinated to give it a certain built-in, if not entirely intentional, resistance to widespread centralized fraud. On the other hand, it's worth noting that both Silence and Symantec have shown that hacking various voting machines is clearly feasible. Like most of the rest of the stuff that touches the Internet, voting machines weren't designed with this kind of cybersecurity in mind. Most observers see the principal threat as Russian information operations directed toward eroding public trust and confidence in the vote, with data deception and denial following in their train. The U.S. intelligence community has publicly attributed hacks of political networks, most notably that of the Democratic National Committee, to the Russian government. President Putin hasn't been shy about characterizing American democracy as a mess, complete with taunts asking whether U.S. allegations of Russian influence operations means that the Americans now think of themselves as a banana republic. His words, not ours. We have no beef against bananas or any other healthy produce. Many analysts think that if his goal was to bring discredit to the U.S. political system, Mr. Putin can already chalk up at least a preliminary victory. The data deception and denial Wired magazine calls out as the other significant risk would probably involve denial-of-service operations, social media trolling, and interference with journalistic coverage of the election, especially reporting of results. Some such activity could be state-directed or it could be merely state-inspired, 
or even just criminal activity taking advantage of the conditions surrounding a high-profile event. Some of the probes of voter databases U.S. authorities hint they've seen appear to be of the third criminal variety. As far as denial-of-service attacks are concerned, both Democratic and Republican presidential campaign sites sustained Mirai-driven distributed denial-of-service campaigns yesterday, but to little effect. Not only was it a bit late in the game to be hitting party sites, with due allowance made for whatever ground game the parties had in mind, but Mirai seems to be losing its mojo. Flashpoint researchers tell us that this is because the widespread availability of the Mirai botnet herding malware source code has caused its botnets to fracture. Essentially, there are more aspiring bot masters trying to stampede the webcam and home router bots against their chosen targets, but there aren't enough bots to go around. So again, the black market functions like a market. It's supply and demand. CrowdStrike, the well-known cyber threat intelligence company, is among those who attributed the DNC hacks to Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear. We spoke with CrowdStrike's Dan Larson about threat actors, what motivates them, and why it's better to be proactive than reactive. You know, if you look over the last three years, we've seen uh, an incredible uptick in the number of private organizations and governments that are experiencing breaches kind of an emerging trend that we're starting to see, you know, you, you can see it as part of the election, actually, is this uh, strategic leaking of documents for the purpose of either uh, political gain or uh, private economic gain. And that notion of breaching an organization as a means to an end, rather to being the end itself, is kind of the alarming trend that we're seeing and that we're, we're working to put to an end. When you talk about uh, the difference between proactive and reactive cybersecurity, what are you talking about there? Uh, I think many of us in cybersecurity are used to this model where uh, something bad happens, uh, a researcher then analyzes that event and produces something like a virus signature or an IOC and then deploys that. And the problem with that whole model is that you're looking in the rearview mirror, right? It assumes it starts with something bad happening and then you do some research to overcome it and, and prevent it in the future. Um, but that model needs to change. And in order to get to proactive, what we believe at CrowdStrike is you need to be uh, actively monitoring the adversaries out there, understanding how they do what they do, what is their trade craft. Uh, and if you're, if you're successful in understanding those things, you're able to build preventative measures uh, so that uh, from a technology perspective, you're able to put in place uh, countermeasures that will prevent the initial infection from happening in the first place. I think one of the great misconceptions for a lot of businesses is they say, you know, uh, we're we're too small to be targeted, right? These targeted attacks are only happening to big name corporations uh, or, you know, political entities and that sort of thing. And that is simply not true. In our own customer base, you know, we have customers who have experienced breaches that are, you know, 10 to 20 employees, and then, of course, the multinationals. And the bottom line is, if you have enough intellectual property to, to justify creating a business, you know, a business that employs people and is relevant in the economy, those are the exact same conditions that make you an interesting target for a lot of the cyber adversaries. That's Dan Larson from CrowdStrike. Tor's duality is on full display this week. Internet users in Turkey are moving heavily to Tor as they seek to circumvent their government's blocking of social media services and its implementation of stronger online censorship. 
On the other hand, Operation Hyperion, a multinational police takedown of Tor-enabled black markets, has shown the less savory uses to which the anonymizing network may be put. And congratulations to the Five Eyes and Europol, which ran Operation Hyperion. The criminal dark web markets they shuttered were selling not only illicit drugs, but counterfeit items, toxins, fraudulent identities and the documents to go with them, and credit card data. They also offered an array of nasty services, including hacking, contract killing, and money laundering. The fraud campaign directed against customers of the UK's Tesco Bank remains under investigation. The bank suspended much online account access, but permitted continued access to pay cards and ATMs, which suggests to some the fraud may have been an inside job as opposed to an external hack. Tesco also hasn't referred to the incident as a hack. Estimates of the bank's exposure to litigation and regulatory penalties run as high as £1.9 billion. Whether that's a British billion or just an American billion, we don't know, but either way, that's a whole lot of pounds. Finally, Tesla Motors has been in a legal spat with one Todd Katz, formerly CFO of an oil field and pipeline services company, and for some reason a critic of Tesla. Tesla is suing Mr. Katz for impersonating Tesla founder Elon Musk in an email sent to Tesla's CFO on August 3rd of this year. Mr. Katz has now countersued. His claim is essentially that no one could have taken his impersonation seriously since it was so riddled with fractured syntax and a host of other solecisms a real email from Mr. Musk would never have committed. Thus, Tesla suffered no actual harm. So here's the message Mr. Katz acknowledges sending. Quote, why are you so cautious with Q3-4 GM guidance on call? Also, what are your thoughts on disclosing M3 res number? Pros, cons from Air POV? What is your best guess as to where we actually come in on Q3-4 deliverables? Honest guess? No BS. Thanks for hard work prepping for today. As Naked Security reports, Mr. Katz says in his brief, quote, Nobody who received this preposterous and grammatically deficient email ever believed it really came from Elon Musk. End quote. All we can say is, all your quarterly guidance are belong to us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. 
You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Rick Howard. He's the CSO at Palo Alto Networks. He runs their Unit 42 Threat Intel team as well. Uh, Rick, uh, you all have a, a new report out uh, from Unit 42. This is on. A, this is called your Nigerian Threat Actor Report. Now, it's become almost a cliche, and, and I think we joke around the office about, you know, I just got a letter from a Nigerian prince who wants to uh, cut me in on, <laughs> on the wealth. Um, but there's more to it here. This report uh, really digs into it. Yeah, we've uh, our Unit 42 guys have been paying attention to this because we keep seeing uh, these attacks going against our various customers around the world. And first, you know, we have to talk about the code name because you can't really write a, write a white paper while giving it a cool code name. So, uh, <laughs> is this classified as Silver Terrier? And you're right; it is a joke around the industry that these Nigerian fraudsters, you know, are going to ask me for money, and we always give it to them. But what we've seen in the last couple of years is that uh, these folks have really up their game, okay, where typically they were really low-level cybercrime cyber actors. Uh, they've now moved into the realm competing with other uh, more high-end cybercriminals, you know, out of Eastern Europe. This all started back in the, you know, 80s with the scams you were talking about, and we refer to them as like the 419 scams because in Nigeria they have a law, Section 419, that forbids this kind of thing, so that's how they kind of got the name. Uh, but now, since then, they have moved, like I said, upgraded their craft. They're using uh, professional tools like Zeus and Dark Comet. They go after uh, you know cheap malware or free malware that they uh, use in their own schemes. They've gone away from blanket targeting to going after very specific targeting uh, to uh, specific industries. Uh, we're seeing high tech and higher education, manufacturing, healthcare, and construction. The volume is steady, about 5,000 to 8,000 attacks per month. So, uh, like I said, they've really upped their game. What's interesting about the white paper we just produced is we've been, we were able to get access to uh, some of their social media from these fraudsters in the country. And they're not their typical um, people we used to think did this. They're not these little script kitty teenager people. They're mostly in their mid-40s. They live in the southeast region of Nigeria, and they're pretty well-to-do. They're educated. They don't hide for some reason. I guess it's okay to be a cyber criminal in Nigeria. Yeah, I was going to ask, does the, does, does the Nigerian government just turn a blind eye to this stuff? I think it's kind of they wink and nod and you know squint at that kind of crime and kind of let it go on. Um, I don't, I'm not an expert there, I'm just, but it's interesting that they can hide in plain sight. Mm -hmm. I think what's also interesting is that they run teams, um, uh, the ones in charge of these groups, uh, they're running uh, lower, uh, not as technically savvy teams, but they give them very specific tasks to do. And we were able to pick all that. And here's a, what I love about this is that they use Facebook for their social stuff. And they don't necessarily hide that they're criminal. They don't really talk about it a lot. But they use Google Plus to do their, you know, cyber criminal stuff. So I guess that's their, their covert channel, I guess. So <laughs> anyway, it's a very interesting report, and uh, you guys should all read it, and I think you will enjoy it. All right. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us.
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 